Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mistakes Were Made, with me, Alex Steger. And me, Frank Tilbert. Great pod, great guest this week, um, the one and only Jeremy Grantham. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a great chat, very wide-ranging conversation with Jeremy, who was very forthcoming, as you'd expect. He's made his name, he's made his millions. Billions, I think, perhaps. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, Jeremy Grantham, for those of you who don't know him, um, is the founder and chief investment strategist of GMO, a sort of a, a, pr- a pretty well-known uh, value shop based in Boston here in the USA. And Jeremy is famous for many things, not least uh, the environment and climate change, but, but from an investment point of view, he's becoming increasingly well-known as a sort of a spotter of bubbles. And GMO's made some big successful calls there, for example, around the 99 uh, tech crash and the uh, 07, 08 housing crises. Um, and that's kind of the focus of our conversation today with Jeremy really was, you know, how he became uh, the, the investor he is today and particularly how he sort of developed this focus on identifying bubbles. Yeah, I think I think his experience and his his mistake ultimately is, is worth listening to for anyone who's investing today. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't want to, you know, give too much away, but effectively this whole sort of identifying bubbles and steering clear wasn't his approach <laughs> when uh, earlier in his investment career. It was much more, you know, spotting these things and, and frankly trying to, trying, to, trying to ride them um, to the top and get out just in time. And, um, you know, obviously that didn't work out brilliantly. And so on that note, here is our interview with Jeremy Grantham. I drifted into investment management. My first job out of business school was a management consultant, which is often the case, particularly back then. And uh, it, it took me a day, really, to realize I'd made a mistake. And so I, I did finally some careful research on, uh, with my friends who was having the most fun. And that seems pretty superficial until you get to 80 and then you realize, of course, it's, the, it's far from being superficial. It's exactly what you should be doing. Um, but the people who were having the most fun were in the stock market, uh, by far. And the reason they were having so much fun was 1968-69 had a wonderful bubble in, in tiny stocks, uh, like little rockets. They would go up five and ten times and then explode. It was uh, a pump and dump in, in the fine tradition of the 19th century. <laughs> and uh, we all got behind these stocks and they roared up and, and then they blew up and, and we tried to jump off intact. And that went on until uh, early 69 when they blew up and, and new rockets didn't appear. Or if they did appear, they blew up on, on ignition. So uh, in, in that time, we had a wonderful time, and I uh, made a small fortune. I made enough to, to buy a, a, a lovely house uh, and a BMW, only uh, my house offer was turned down. <laughs> so I, I kept my money in the stock market and managed to lose it all, much to my wife's disgust, but she took it brilliantly well. And... Um, so from that day on, I have had enormous sympathy with the excitement and the pull of a bubble. There is absolutely nothing like it. You know, we, we put uh, the stock du jour in mid-'68 
was American Raceways that had Sterling Master World Champion Grand Prix racing driver on the board. And it was going to introduce Grand Prix into the US. Why wouldn't the US like it? Noisy, loud, dangerous, death. You know, I mean, in those days, all, all, of, the, all of the guys tended to die after three or four years. They didn't have these amazing uh, protective uh, monocoque devices made of carbon, this and that, that they have today. Anyway, um, my wife and I were going off to Europe for three weeks holiday and we sat down at the last lunch and we heard the American Raceways and we bought 300 shares at $7 a share and we went away. We came back three weeks later and it was 21. And that was par for the course. And I like to say I did what any good value manager would do. I sold everything else I had and tripled up. <laughs> so now, <laughs> now I had 900 shares. Mostly, mostly on borrowed money from, from the bank. And, uh, and by Christmas, it was 100. So, um, so I was rich. By English standards of the day, I was rich. And, uh, and by June of 69, I was back to $3,000. Um, and everything had gone. Was this when, when your approach to bubbles began to change then because obviously it's funny hearing you say this because you know you're I think you're very well known now for 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 identifying bubbles and and obviously then not sort of riding them up if that's the right phrase um you know instead you're you you know you're out of them and and, and you're sort of you know identifying them and steering clear um so was this when when your sort of approach to that began to change absolutely I I went in as a beginner and just having fun and I came out amazed at having made so much money, um, embarrassed to have lost it all, embarrassed in terms of my wife and, and not so much my colleagues. And from that day forth, I did my best to, to grab hold of my speculative instincts, beat them into shape, and... and um, pay strict attention to value investing. Um, and, um, and so it was. I, ironically, I, I had even started thinking about value investing while I was simultaneously as an individual uh, speculating my tail off. I was, as a professional, beginning, <laughs> beginning to get into the principles of serious investing as opposed to speculation. And, and my loss, though, taught me like a great slap across the face taught me better and quicker than anything else could have done. So you talk, you, you talk about the, the lure and excitement of bubbles. What are the signs? Like you as, a, as an investor personally that you kind of, you knocked into shape. If, if you see that sign, stay clear or short it. In, in, the, in our business, and you know, 40 years later, I, I've become a kind of a bubble expert, I guess you could say, since I've spent so long looking at them. Um, we, we have a little problem, and that is if you say it's a bubble, uh, people interpret that to mean, and it's about to break. But that's not what you're saying. So step, problem number one is what is a bubble? And at GMO, 20 years ago, we realized we had to answer that to, to bring some sort of order to the, to the problem. And so we defined it statistically. Uh, a two sigma event, which is if you had a random series 
of reds and blacks in a roulette on a roulette wheel. It would be the kind of thing that would happen uh, every 44 times. So the kind of market that would occur every 44 years randomly, uh, either uh, very, very good, very, very bad. Now that seems like a pretty decent definition. And we went through the data and we looked for uh, two sigma bubbles. And we found 350. And, and we went through all the data that was available. Currencies, commodities, stocks, real estate. And we asked the question, how many were paradigm shifts? How many went up a lot and stayed up for at least decades? And the answer was about 10% of them were real paradigm shifts, which is a pretty dangerously high fraction. But they turned out to be nearly all in commodities. Now, the trouble from an investment manager's point of view is some of them go from two sigma to three sigma. They should be pretty rare, but we do outlier events very well, homo sapiens. So once we get very excited, we become extraordinarily excited far more than random. And then four sigma is even worse. When, you get, when we start to freak out, we go into warp drive many, many more times than random. So that is a bit of a problem. So you blow the whistle at two sigma, and you know you're going to make money if you stay out of trouble. Just get out of the market, stay out, you'll make money, um, because it will come all the way back to trend. And um, the problem is, will your clients still be around? Because they would have all left you because you've been out of the market for so long, and they've... Um... Right, it's extremely difficult. Now, it turns out that the GMO has never blown the whistle at, uh, for a bubble at less than two sigma. So in Japan, we waited... So these a are two standard deviation events? Yes, a two standard deviation event. And what's the, what's the chance of that? Is, that? is that just 3% or something? Well, in real life, it occurs every 35 years. Yeah, 3%. Uh, statistically, it occurs every 44 years. So every 2.5%. Every so it's pretty close. And we hit that in Japan, and we, we kept investing in Japan for a couple of years. And then when it went to 45 times earnings, we said, this is ludicrous, and we got out 100%. And then we watched in Japan as they went to 65 times earnings, which is brutal. And we underperformed by a lot, and then, of course, got it all back with a lot of interest over the following three years, and then... The, the next 20 years as a freebie. Um, we didn't blow the whistle in, in uh, 98 until it was two sigma. So we knew in 98 that it was going to come all the way back, which it did. But we didn't know how high it would go. And 99, 2000, it went a lot higher. So you must be seeing a lot of these, where, where, where are the two standard deviation events that are happening today? Well, I assume lots of places. <laughs> the, the US equity market, which is the big event, it, um, it hit two sigma um, in a fairly boring way uh, in uh, late uh, 18, trolleyed along sideways, uh, very boring, got whacked by COVID, and then everything changed. It was no longer boring. 
The great bull market, the longest bull market in history, was a very boring market. The economy didn't seem to function that well. The growth rates were a little subpar. And the markets drifted up uh, steadily, but they also had some down legs. It, it didn't feel like a bubble. By then, I had become quite an expert in what happens in the real McCoy bubbles. And what happens is people become overtly crazy. The stories are massive. Uh, they dominate the front page, not the, not the financial page, but the front page of the newspaper. They're all over the radio and the TV and wherever else you have as your media of the, of the age. And we know 1929, which is the prototype, which is a classic, but we had the South Sea bubble and the tulips before that and so on. And... John Law in, in, in France. And that was totally lacking uh, as this stock market hit, flickered to Sigma in, in uh, late 2018. But when it came roaring back with the stimulus program, program to do with COVID, it came slashing through to Sigma about June, July of last year. And I quite happily said, that time, whoops, this is a bubble. It's two sigma, it's moving like a rocket ship, it's accelerating, which is critical. It's not just rising, but it's rising at a faster and faster rate. It's crazy, people are talking nonsense already, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was checking, checking off all the boxes. And since then, it went from two to three sigma, bang. And if I thought it was crazy in June, July of last year, oh my God, my favorite, some of my favorites of all time uh, have occurred since then. Th these are stories so crazy that we will be talking about them. I promise you, you all will be talking about them or your children in 50 years. Th these are more impressive than anything that happened in 1929. Well, just to start at the big end, uh, Tesla was selling at 23 times the value of every car sold. You know, GM would be selling at 0.6 times one car. And Tesla was selling at 23 times every car. If you bought a Tesla car, the price of the stock went up by 23 times the 45 grand that you just paid. <laughs> and I own a Tesla and they're <laughs> wonderful. And, and I'm a great fan of, of, of Musk and, and Tesla. And we owe, I'm a green, as you know, and we owe them a lot. They have moved the entire uh, EV industry along single-handedly, saving two, three, four years of the entire industry, maybe more for all I know. Uh, but in any case, 23 times the value of your cars, pretty, pretty crazy. And the other day, Hertz said they're going to buy 100,000. And the deal isn't, even now, isn't papered down, but they said they were. And what happened the next day, sure enough, uh, the price yeah, of- rocketed up, didn't it? It went up by 23 times the price of the 100,000 sales as if they A, had occurred, and, and B, would make so much money uh, that they would somehow be worth 23 times the sale. Anyway, that, that isn't the best story. The best story is a week or two later, Avis rather plaintively says, hey dudes, we're gonna, we're gonna buy some electric cars also. Bang, the stock tripled in a day, in a day. <laughs> and this is not a tiny company. You know, for a second at the end of that, it was the largest company in the Russell 2000. 
So it's not a giant company, but still quite significant. Tripled in a day, for God's sake. Find me a story that crazy in 1929. Even Japan. Uh, I always defer to Japan, even today. But still, they didn't have any crazier stories than that one. Now, Do you think that anything's different today? Do you think that... that the, not, 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 sorry, not in terms of this isn't a bubble. I mean in terms of why this is happening. Do you think there are different dynamics at play? I mean, something that springs to mind would be, um, you know, Hertz became uh, a meme stock at one point, didn't it? It was sort of going into bankruptcy. And, and Avis be- became a meme stock. And in in, it went from slightly meme to very meme in a day. <laughs> so do you think do you think something's changed here? I, I guess to do I, more through communication and the internet and sort of yeah, how yeah. people are... Yeah, the, uh, the internet has, discussing stocks and things. Internet has produced a, a, a machinery for making these things much faster and and spreading um, all over the place uh, as fast as the speed of light. You could say, uh, with some justification, and um, every every bubble is quite different. The technology of 1929, they had ticker tapes. You know, they didn't have ticker tapes in the bubbles of the 19th century. So suddenly, everyone was standing around in Chicago and Cincinnati over lunch, checking, checking their latest stock price and shouting it out to their buddies. And uh, so every, every time it's different. But it has one thing in common. A bubble has a big buy-in to the idea that this time is different. And it has a big buy-in to the idea that stocks never decline. Or housing. The, the great buzzword in housing, really, in, in the in the housing bubble of uh, uh, 2006, 2007 in the U.S., was that U.S. house prices had never declined. And in case you didn't get the point, Ben Bernanke, chairman of the Fed, said that. U.S. house prices have never declined. Uh, Of course they'd never declined, Ben, because they'd never had a Federal Reserve pushing so hard (coughs) on house prices before. What he could have added is every time they form a two sigma, they bust. It formed a two sigma in the housing market. It went up to three sigma, and it broke all the way. It's a perfect bubble. It went up for three years. It came down for three three years. It sucked in an incremental 4% of all the public into buying houses that had never bought houses before. It took the number from 62 to 66% of families, and then by the bottom, it was 62 again. You see, you've spoken a bit about the the craziness going on in in the EV names. Uh, you're 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 big into your green stocks. You know how can investment help? You know what mistakes are people making with allocation of capital towards ESG outside of the EV plays? What mistakes are they making? Um, I have a huge conflict. Yeah, are, are they are they attributing their money to the right places? No, no, no one ever does that, but. Uh... <laughs> the, 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 thing you, the thing you ask in, in a bubbly environment, and, and green investing is participating in the bubble. The thing you are, ask is, does it help? At the end of the bubble, when the smoke has cleared and you pick through the wreckage, did it, did it move the technology forward? Yes, it does. Yeah, a lot of silly pet.coms fail along the way. But out of the ma- mess comes... Um, a handful of Amazons. Do you know what Amazon did in the crash, in the tech crash? It went down 92%. Its progress was completely normal, i.e. steady and and brilliant. It 
it was a very successful time for it, but it dropped 92%. And then in three or four years, it went back where it came from. And then in the following 10 years, it, it moved into the history books on the upside. But nothing could be better for the green industry than to have waves of enthusiasm and masses of money. The greening of the economy is the biggest challenge that we have ever faced. If we don't do it, global society uh, will fracture. So it's I feel it's so banal taking it back to asset management. I'm going to do it anyway. Do 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 you think that firms are doing? You know, all these firms launching uh, ESG funds or uh, saying that, that that they sort of take an ESG approach to to running actually what seem to be quite traditional, um, you know, equity funds or whatever. I mean. Are they doing any good? You know, you mentioned, okay, there's interest in, in, in greening of the economy. There's, there's money going towards some of these initiatives. But yeah. is asset management doing any good here at all, by and large? Or? It doesn't matter. If you do the right thing for silly, selfish financial reasons, it doesn't, it doesn't undo the fact that it's the right thing. So by putting more attention on good behavior, how, tell me again, how could you possibly hurt? You know, so you... Uh, you give more points uh, to the people who move more quickly into doing the right thing for their workers and, and so on. But when I, when I get invited to ESG, which I do, I always kind of go into full disclosure and I say, guys, ESG, I'm here as an E, right? S and G is good behavior. What is not to like about good behavior? But E is about survival. So, I mean, get real yeah. here. You it's, have it's to take different E levels. as a matter of life and death. You, you, you should do S and G because you're good people. And it will have a benevolent effect. And a lot of it will be flim-flam. But it still will move very slowly the needle in the right direction. So, yes, of course, I approve of ESG. But, but uh, you have to... Put your life behind E if you understand the problems that we face. Well, that was our interview with Jeremy Grantham, and look, you know, um, wide ranging, and he had a, you know a lot of views to share on, on various things. But I think let's start at the beginning with with that mistake, uh, and it's so interesting, isn't it, Frank? Because you sort of obviously today, you know, I think of him as this very, uh, you know, frankly, sort of you know cautious, frank, you know, bearish investor, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of a, a you know doom monger. Um, but when he was starting out, he was um, he was sort of you know pretty speculative, pretty tradery, kind of the antithesis of what he is today. And I, and I thought that was fascinating to find out. Yeah, I mean he he learned to be wary of bubbles in a bubble. You know he describes them as intoxicating, the kind of allure that you get from them. You know the only reason he got into broking in the first place is because he saw his friends were having more fun there than anywhere else. I mean. And by fun, we obviously mean money. Um, his experience is, you know, as I said, worth listening to. It's, it's hard to believe he went from making a fortune uh, to next to nothing overnight. It's a cautionary tale uh, that he believes has a lot of parallels with, with today. And, and the way he was fobbing off my, my questions about, isn't this bubble different? And he said, that's what they say every time. He believes it's worse. <laughs> yeah, no, he really does. And, you know, and again, that contrast, you know, to, to hear that he was... Um, betting on sort of or betting investing, I suppose, um, on you know 
a company that was going to bring Grand Prix to the to, to the US, and and he, and he lost his 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 house or his potential house because of that. Versus the sort of investor he is today, is you know it, it's a marked contrast. And yeah, in terms of his views of today, you know, as he said, they've called this bubble. Just because you call it doesn't mean it's necessarily imminent. So we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, his views on you know, for example, what's going on with Tesla, um, really interesting and. Um, he obviously does seem pretty, pretty wary about 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 valuations in the US and where things are. Yeah, I mean, he he so obviously thinks it's just crazy. I mean, he says we're going to be talking about this in twenty, thirty years time that a company like Tesla could be valued at what it is valued at, despite making relatively few cars. I mean, just coming back to to his his mistake, and it's interesting how a lot of the people we have on the show made their big mistakes when they were young. I think about Meb Faber from a few weeks ago, learned from it, and ultimately ended up being very successful. I think if anything, it promotes risk-taking when you are young. That's not exactly what I'm getting at. I think starting young, investing is the best thing you can do. There's a lot of investors doing the exact same thing today. I've heard that crypto ownership among school kids in the UK is alarmingly high. I mean, obviously that is cause for concern because let's face it, they could lose it all. Um, but that they're investing their pot. Yeah, that, that they're investing their pocket money in anything but, as you would do, football stickers. It can only be a good thing for financial literacy in the long term, as long as they don't get burned too hard. Yeah, football stickers, uh, McCoy's crisps, cans of Coke. Those were my sort of, you know, I was pretty heavily invested in those as a, as a teenager. Um, boost bars. Didn't see a huge... Ret- boost bars. Didn't see a huge... Some of this stuff not great for the American audience, you know. Just running through British British snacks. Um yeah, didn't see a huge return on that investment. Um, yeah, I think it is interesting. Obviously, people make mistakes when they're young. It does seem to shape them. Um, I suppose it is the time at which you can afford uh, to lose it and, and make it all back again. It would be interesting to hear from someone on this podcast, <laughs> someone in their 60s who's, who's just lost it all. We'll have to go searching <laughs> for that guest, I guess. It's going to be a goodbye from me, Alex Steger. And a goodbye from me, Frank Talbot. Mm-hmm.